This is Proxilla Radio, the UK's first dedicated progressive rock music radio network. Tabletop Genesis, the podcast where we talk about Genesis and you listen to us talk. So exciting. I am Mike Lord. I am your, you know, person who talks first on this podcast. And so let's go around the horn and introduce ourselves. Hello, this is Tom Roche. This is Watt Stacy. Hello, this is Ellie Nottinger. And this is Simon Godfrey. And today we are talking about Wind and Wuthering, the album from late 1976 and mr simon will talk to us about what's on wikipedia about wind and wuthering wind and wuthering is the eighth studio album from the english rock band genesis released in december 1976 on charisma records upon its release the album reached number seven in the united kingdom and number 26 in the united states your own special way was released as the album's sole single (laughs) The album was recorded in 1976 after the commercial and critical success of A Trick of the Tale and its supporting tour. Hackett felt some of his material was dropped in favour of songs written by keyboardist Tony Banks. Some of its titles and lyrics contain literary and historical references, including works by Emily Bronte and D.K. Broster. The band and critics have given a mostly positive review of the album. Hackett and Banks named it one of their favourite Genesis records. Genesis's 1977 world tour to promote it drew an enthusiastic reception from audiences. At its conclusion, Hackett left the band to continue his solo career. Three tracks recorded during the album sessions were later released in the extended Spot the Pigeon EP. The album has since reached gold certification by the British Phonographic Institute and the Recording Industry Association of America and remastered with a new stereo and 5.1 surround mix in 2007. So this is an album that generally I think is, you know, as the Wikipedia says, has a pretty positive view for most Genesis fans. We're going to do our track-by-track analysis and talk about what we liked or disliked or what's kind of middle of the road for us. And so we're going to jump in with 11th Earl of Mar.
11th Earl of Mar, great opener or greatest opener? Greatest opener. I wrote in my notes that every band should start every concert with this song. <laughs> right. Even if you're not Genesis, it doesn't matter. It just it play that song. Because it will win the audience over. I love this song. I love it as an opener. I think it's, yeah, it's the best album opener. And I think if they did it live, the best. Yeah, I think that was one of their strong points. They had a lot of key songs with an opening just grabbed you. When I think of songs like this, I also think of uh, Watch of the Skies. I think of Dodo. I think of On a Master's Night. Just all songs that just have this amazing opening that just grabbed you from the beginning. And uh, yeah, to start off this album was just incredible. It's how it grabs you. I understand that. I'm reading off uh, Wikipedia here that um, the opening line of the song is actually the opening line of the novel The Flight of the Heron by D.K. Broster. Oh, so that's where that D.K. Broster yeah. reference comes So in. the sun had been up for a couple of hours, covered the ground with a layer of gold. That's actually the first line of the book. Oh. So I actually did not know that. So now after, is that a book about this Scottish uprising? It's about, that's... yeah, the, the failed Scottish uprising around 1715. And who, what rock star wouldn't want to write a song about that? <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think, I think, I think a lot of, a lot of the, uh, never mind the bollocks was about the Jacobites, wasn't it? Yeah. I think Mike originally intended to write about the 10th Earl of Mar, but he was such a wanker that he decided to go the 11th. Go right to the 11th. I think there were, uh, there were other songs about the first 10, so you have to go up to the 11th. Uh, this is, I agree with Stacy. I think this is an awesome opener. I actually think that the the remix, the 5.1 mix that was done a couple years ago uh, with Nick Davis makes this an even more tremendous opener because Wind and Wuthering, I thought, as, as the original album, actually kind of, it always felt very tight to me. It always felt like it was, it was very tinny to me on the versions that I had, both on vinyl and then earlier CDs. And all of a sudden, this remix gave every track on this album the power that I always thought that it should have. And uh, I think this is a great, you know, great keyboards from Tony, great guitar work throughout from uh, from Steve. Mike Rutherford and Phil Collins own this album as a rhythm section, especially Mike Rutherford on bass. He, I don't know what, what bass he was using on this album, but it was tremendous, whatever it was. It this, had the yeah, sound. Was, was this there. song, I, I particularly wrote, Mike is incredible on the bass on this. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's outstanding. That it, you just can hear the bass. It's so present. <laughs> it's the first Genesis song you can dance to. There you go. Yeah, Stacy had said that she, this is a very danceable song. And yeah, you heard it first, folks. This is where Invisible Touch was born. <laughs> <laughs> On the Scottish Plains or Highlands or wherever it might be. So yeah, I, I think you know, yeah, lyrically it may be about a fairly you know, you know, oblique historical subject, but it still to me has that emotional immediacy. You know, especially the final verse in here, where it's uh, you know, to me it's all about memories. You know, bury your memories, bury your friends, leave it alone for a year or two, till the stories grow hazy and the legends come true. Then do it again. Some things never end. It's just about that, you know, that myth making in our own lives. That as time goes by, you kind of create these stories about yourself. Yeah, the rose tinted glasses. Yeah, effect, isn't it? Exactly. So I I think it really works on on that level for me. You know, it's. And it's just a kick-ass music. And I like the kind of quieter interlude in the middle. with the. Oh, I have to say, that is, speaking personally, I think that's probably 
the best melody I've ever heard Phil Collins come up with the uh, time to go to bed now that whole section in itself is, is a just a little slab of beauty a little droplet I should say not a slab a droplet of beauty with, right in the middle and whoever suggested that we, they drop that in the middle genius genius idea really in terms of the, the remixes the opening is a lot more lush on, on the remixes I was disappointed in the remix when they get to that point at the end of the middle section where he goes the face turns features are burning uh, and they go to like it seems to be a little bit flat on the remixes where on the original CD and the cassette I was just, it just kind of like pops out at that yeah. point the big keyboards and the organs whereas I, I'm, I was waiting for that on the remixes I'm like this is going to be awesome and all of a sudden I'm like oh, okay <laughs> I, I don't know I, I don't know if you've been listening to it loud enough I think that that's I don't know maybe, maybe it's just the, the systems here I only have 5.0 I don't have 5.1 <laughs> that's right you need to shake the house the I think that that just it does come out for me the way that it should in, with power at that point and again you know different systems do you know different things differently which is you know whenever you see critiques of mixes online or on different websites it's I always kind of wonder what are people listening to this through because you know yeah for me this was that worked but I, I'll have to listen to it again and see if uh, it doesn't do it for me and with, with regards to the lyrics I always find myself when I sing along to this every other line I'm singing along because there's a line that I don't every other line I do not understand so I'll be like <laughs> out on the road in the direction of Perth backwards and forwards in circle they went da 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 those conquering heroes and then I come back in I'm like I don't know what the, and I don't care that I don't know what don't know what he's singing I'm just like I agree uh, with Tom I don't know any of the words and <laughs> when I listened to this to prep for the show I was like oh, I really should look at the lyrics but I was like you know what no for, I'm so I wrote down what I think he's saying in the first verse. So let okay. me read to you what I think right. Phil is singing. Sun had been up for a couple hours, carrying around a litter of gold. Spirits wore high and the radius stopped. The line is lovely. The boy was never heard. How close am I? All right, here we go. Here's the sun had been up for a couple of hours. It covered the ground with a layer of gold. Spirits were high and the raining had stopped. The larder was low. But boy, that wasn't all. What? Yeah. So you were kind of close. That, yeah, this, enti- yeah. this entire song, I have no idea. But like Tom, I'm like, well, I'm singing along yeah. to it, you know. And... You get phonetic on its ass. Oh, yeah, yeah. I totally right. do. So I, I'm i looking forward to maybe someday. Right. Le- actually, and I'm f- thank you for telling me what the song's about. Because I thought <laughs> it was just some like acid trip that they went on and they were just you know recording but that's the great thing about this is that you can listen to these songs and it doesn't have to be about what it's supposed to be about you're enjoying the music just as a piece of music you don't have to know the context of it on the some of the bootlegs and some of the live shows that are out there this is again you know when Mike Rutherford was still doing stage introductions he would introduce this these are his lyrics I'm pretty sure so Yeah, yeah. yeah so I think he would kind of tell the story briefly of what mm-hmm. was going on you know and was like okay i gotta go to the bathroom now <laughs> but at the end of the song there's this line that says tell the la- lairds and the lords tell the lairds lairds so what is lairds lairds, lairds. it's a title lairds. it's yeah. a title it's like like, like baron or uh, king or yeah it's a scottish yeah. word it's a scottish yeah. word oh there you go yeah. thank you <laughs> Things basically starts for lords in some way. I, do you know the only the only other time that I'd, I'd ever encountered the word laird is uh, is in Macbeth. Okay. So so maybe it is maybe it's a Shakespearean quote. <laughs> 
Look yeah. at the big brains on Simon. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's also I. I oh, I'm sorry. Uh, um, <laughs> g- go Eagles. <laughs> uh, and then w- one other thing, Mar means sea in Spanish. Oh, okay. So did you think that that was some sort of connection? I, when... I thought it was that they were mixing languages, but right. maybe Mar. There's an there's an Earl of Mar somewhere oh, in yeah. the UK. The Earl of the Sea. <laughs> yeah. But I think that that goes. I mean, to what Stacy was saying too, where you were able to listen to this again when you were first getting into this without even in some ways worrying about the words you were just listening to it for the sound of it all together yeah this particular song as tom said what are what what are they talking about there's no way i can understand unless i'm I'm reading i'm reading the lyrics but if i want to figure out the words no way so that now we jump into one for the vine One for the wine, Ellie joked before, but it is one for the vine. So I have a question. Does anybody know which band member was squeezing Phil Collins' nuts when he was <laughs> singing this song? I mean, my bet was Tony Banks, but... Right. Well, I think well, it was Richard McFell. He had those duties where he had to cook and squeeze Phil Collins' balls. Yeah, right. Okay. Just to get those high notes. Yeah. That's I can't even sing those high notes, yeah. and I, I I don't have actual balls. Well, there's so. that moment in, in uh, Come Rain or Shine where they're listening back. They were actually considering doing the song part of Cinema Show on the 2007 tour, and they're listening, I think, to the Seconds Out version of it, and Phil is just kind of in shock as to how high he was singing back then. Oh, he's like enormous balls. <laughs> so that's uh, you know, yeah. I think that you know the mid '70s Phil could certainly hit some of those notes yeah. in different ways. So yeah, what do people think of the song? I think this is. I mean, I think Tony thinks of it as one of his masterpieces, which I think it is. It's like it's a typical Tony Banks, just like from start to finish. This is his baby. I think he developed it for a while, and from what I read about, uh, he played it for the band kind of just doing the la-la-las for the words and they actually liked it and he was pretty psyched about that so he went and developed a little bit more and I think it became a big stage uh, song for them. They did it in Wind and Weathering Tour. I think they did it Up to Duke. Up to Duke. Yep. And actually the Duke live version is one of my favorites because there's this drum fill that Phil and Chester do right in the middle of the fast part 
it has like the stuttering stop and they just in such in unison it's it's incredible it's one of my favorite phil chester phil's and there's also a part when they do it live where when phil gets to the part he walked into a valley like they slow that down so much in that okay. 80 version live it just gives it a lot more room and a lot more air to breathe it's just like makes it like more suspense for when they finally get into that what i call the alarm clock yeah i believe this song was actually written during the trick of the tail sessions um and he wasn't happy with it and uh, and as a result was tinkering with it until eventually i think he felt that it was good enough to uh um, to record for uh, yeah. for wind. I think he said it took him about a year to write this song all together, and that, and whether that's just music and lyrics together, I think that's it shows. It is not one of my favorites on the album. I know that this gets a lot of love from people, but there's something with the story that to me it's Tony Banks's Twilight Zone episode, where mm-hmm. it's oh this person disappears and becomes this ruler who's leading people into battle. But at the end, you discover it's the same person, and it's a circular story. And I was like, oh, okay, I get that. Yeah. And it's two battle songs in a row as well. Yeah. yeah. And it was. I'm not entirely sure if that's legal. <laughs> right, yeah. In some countries, it may be rough. But yeah, I, I think it's. I love the middle part, the middle instrumental section. I think there's a lot of energy to it. I think that, you know, Steve and Tony's playing on this in unison in a lot of different places is really fun and really good. But just as lyrically, it it just doesn't do it for me. Well, I always, and I'm not going to get political here or or whatever, and you can spam me on tabletopgenesis.com if you like, but (laughs) whenever I hear the song, the opening lyrics, I cannot not think of George W. Bush and the Iraq War. (laughs) It goes, 50,000 men were sent to do the will of one. His claim was phrased quite simply, though he never voiced it loud. I am he, the chosen one. In his name they could slaughter, for his name they could die. Though many of there were believed in him, still more were sure he lied, but they'll fight the battle on. And I always hear, I, that's, I automatically think of the Iraq War and George W. Bush when I read those lines. The rest of it then goes on, and I can enjoy the song, but I can't get past that without mm. having that nod. But I say, you can spam me on our website. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, I, I, and actually, those, in, those intro lyrics are really good. Like, I really think that those are... are well it certainly done. sets the scene. Yeah, and but then it, when it gets into the more again, I'll, I'll say just as a shorthand, kind of science fictiony part of oh, it's this time loop and everything. I just I just don't care. But I think that it's <laughs> and, and I'm a science fiction guy. I love this stuff. Yeah. But it's and I I think it would have been a stronger song without that aspect to it. Um, but it wouldn't have been the song it is. So, you know, there you have it. Certainly from a narrative perspective. But... Right. And I think that's more of a songwriter piece. I agree with you, Mike. I, I think, you know, and now knowing how long Tony Banks worked on this, it does sound like it's a little overthought and yeah. not forced, but it's certainly, a, you know, in the context of all the other songs in the album, this is the like the most produced and, right. and you know, complex. Yeah. Um, this is and a gr- this is a great arrangement. Arrangement, exactly. Yeah. And I, you know, I, the lyrics I could give or take. I can give or take lyrics in general. I'm more of a person that listens to the music, right. and then lyrics are kind of like an afterthought or a secondary consideration. Um, but what I really love about this song, and what I sometimes will like just skip to, is the instrumental. You know, that Donna Summer, I feel love breakdown <laughs> in the middle. I right. just absolutely love it. They get a little funky, yeah. and it kind of hits you out of nowhere because yeah. it's just, 
you know, like you said, science fiction, yeah. fantasy, oh, romantic, romantic warrior, that. and then they're like, ooh, ooh, you know, in the middle, and it's like, all right, it's <laughs> And when the the, the um, I actually the version I heard before that was the three size live the live sure, version yeah. they did, which is um, the version that I prefer, actually. Yes, me too. And I was like, this kicks ass. And then <laughs> when I got the album, you know, it's not as of course the you know that energy and they, sure. it's not as upbeat or up tempo is the uh, live version but i still love it it's still that's that's a part like you have to crank it up yeah and to really appreciate it particularly on the 5.1 mix again oh, yeah. which i agree is fantastic for this, this is a very live sounding album to yeah. me though it really does feel like that these are guys sitting in a room together all playing at the same time that middle part where you the donna summer part like yeah. i i was a very stern, you know, okay, Genesis is serious and like other great. And then I was dating this girl in, in 2001 and I, somehow we were playing the song. She's like, oh, that's such a good dance section, that middle section. I'm like, no, it's not. So when we played that middle section, she got up and did this like interpretive dance to the middle of it. I was like, oh my God, she's right. <laughs> did, you pro- did you propose to her right then? No, or I said, was that's that... it. It was nice knowing you. <laughs> but you figure it was 76, 70, you know, yeah. edging on 77, disco was coming out. And then since then, I've pictured, well, if someone could do a mashup of that middle section with John Travolta from Saturday Night Fever <laughs> together, mixing the music, you could probably have a pretty good dance scene. Tom, you have a mission now. That's yeah. my mission, or anybody yes. fan who wants to put that mishmash together. Yeah, we'd love to hear it. We'll play it on our podcast. Yeah, yeah. We'll somebody... show it if somebody do a video. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, it's, it's, yeah, I, I actually love that middle section. I, a lot of times when I listen to instrumental music like that or instrumental pieces, I end up focusing on one instrument, and there's, I can just listen to Phil's hi hat in yeah. that middle part where it's just like he's playing it, and it's just like he's he's it's very intentional everything in that section. This is also uh, the period where I think um, technically Collins was probably at the height of his drumming powers. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I tend to prefer his power drumming of mm-hmm. the sort of like early eighties to to. Uh, to the to the um although you know don't get me wrong i've got a lot of time for sort of like he was at this point in time possibly one of the better drummers on the planet at mm-hmm. this point sure. technically speaking he had the fastest sort of left foot in the west mm-hmm. and uh, he was hot off the press from from his brand x albums as well um and yeah his his drumming work on this is superb right and, and as a drummer and i think a little bit of trivia i think when they did this live it was one of the few times where he sang a lead vocal from the drums as he was drumming. After the instrumental bit. Yeah, yep. when he sings, uh, uh, They Leave Me No Choice. Oh, he he's pulls yeah. down the mic, starts singing. Yeah. The only times he really sung a lead vocal behind the drums was uh, Follow You, Follow Me in yep. 2007, 2007, and I can't think of any other time. I think on his solo all... tours he would do solo um, tours, yeah. it at different times. But with he did mine, Paper Late. <laughs> oh, right. Does that count? Mm, we'll figure that out. Mine so. is money. So. <laughs> Mine is money. <laughs> I, 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 obviously, I love this song. Even it's a great song to 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 be played live and everything. It's in every you know in all the concerts and, and the recordings in Three Sides Live and obviously Second Sound. It sounds amazing. Now in an alternate universe, I would split this song in two, hmm. like. Right before the instrumental beat starts, maybe one for the one two or something like that. But I love it. It's okay. an amazing song. It's a long song, but I, the middle part is it's it's, it's pretty amazing. So it's yeah, uh, I can I see love what it, you're. Yeah, I can I see what you're driving maybe, at. But yeah, 
maybe it needed something like that the you know the bit that was drifted dripped dropped into 11th Earl of Mar, the acoustic bit, something a little different in the middle of... Well, because it does dip for the let me rest for a while and then it goes yeah. into that very right. sort of like quiet section then it lifts itself. I can definitely... Like, Samson has to hit pause and then continue listening at yeah. some other time, whatever. <laughs> 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 it's, it's not that it's too intense or anything, it's just... Uh, but you notice it's going on for a long time. Yeah. Well, some longer songs, it's like, wow, that's over already? Yeah. But this yeah, one, you yeah. Can, yeah, you notice, like, okay, checking your watch. <laughs> <laughs> So now we move on to your own special way. I don't dislike it or I hate it or anything like that. It's I'm fine with the song. I just don't like the middle instrumental bit. The, the middle, the, like the Tonys. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think it. Yeah. The Doogie Howser middle it's, uh, part. Yeah, it's, it's a mistake. <laughs> uh, but you know the lyrics are fine. You know it's a little song. It's, it's, it doesn't annoy me or anything. It's sometimes I skip it, sometimes I don't. But yeah, the middle part is just something that doesn't off. work for me. It's it exactly it goes on for too long and. Uh, more than necessary my i i dislike this song but i say that with the caveat of when i was re-listening to this for for this podcast to the song i i like bits of it like the opening guitar and the verse i think are great i really think it has some character to it and it moves forward in a nice way and but i always think oh that should end right there Oh, it's going going into a chorus. Okay, I'll listen to the chorus. Oh, the chorus is okay. It should probably end right there. A nice little short song, like more fool me, something keep it keep it short. Oh no, it's going on to another verse. Oh, maybe it'll end there. Oh no, it doesn't end there. Oh, there's another chorus. Oh, and there's this piano, electric piano thing that Tony's doing that's going on forever. That should probably end the song. Oh no, they're going into the verse again. And it just does that continually where I think this is a nice three-minute song that's turned into a five- or six-minute song, and it just kills me when I hear it. And I, I, it goes on for too long. I would agree with that. I would say that it's one of those, those tracks that... Uh, for starters, let me just say that I had no idea that there was such a negative reaction... Um, to you know, from a from a wider perspective amongst the Genesis community, about how negative people viewed this song, um, and it's, you know, it's like anything else. It was when I first started listening to this song was pre-internet, so you know, every every person's an island at that point. So I, God damn it, I came to my own conclusion. <laughs> a friend of mine actually had a, a different take on the lyric. Now, from what I understand, it was it was Mike Rutherford that wrote. Yes, yes. this is his whole song. Yes. Yeah, and he wrote song. it for his wife or something. Uh, and the interesting thing is that um, uh, my my friend 
didn't realise and didn't know it was a love song and thought it was a, about a sailor talking about being on a boat and the wind is the way you take me, whichever which way you turn. And he thought it, he thought it was a ballad to to sailing. Sure, it's a metaphor. Yeah, yeah sure. you know, and uh, and that was that was something which really caught. And I didn't even know it was a love song for for years, basically. And I like it. I agree, it does go on too long. <laughs> but I think it's one of those things where this was probably their first attempt to consciously write a pop song since Genesis to Revelations. And I think um, it was that moment where they'd become so known for long, drawn-out songs with movements, the kind of the habit stuck. Sure. And I think that that's part of the reason why. And um, again, it comes down to uh, the reason what the very first time I realised that there was such dislike for this song is I was... Um, uh, at a festival in in the UK and I was um, with a gentleman called David Elliott who runs a record label and we were in uh, a hotel room it was an after show party and we were with friends I was with uh, another guy there called Leon Camfield who is a drummer we were just discussing between the two of us about how much actually we quite like your own special way you think it's very good and Leon just burst in and went no you're wrong <laughs> and I'll tell you why you're wrong and then he went into this 15 minute tirade against it uh, which at the very end of it we just stood up and applauded <laughs> not because necessarily we agreed but it was so elegantly put basically and with such ferocity right. well again Genesis is a band that you can love in many different ways and but some people really find you know things that they do that are not pleasant and you know it's it's a different approach to music and you know some people say oh you know after D peter left everything was shit after steve left everything was shit after whoever what you know it's after 1982 everything was shit and it's like well you know there's that's an easy opinion to have because you don't have to think about it my opinion is that i like things off of every album this band has done but there are also things that I'm not that thrilled about, and I don't hate them. I think, you know, Your Own Special Way is okay, but I don't have any urge to really play it ever on my... I never say, oh, I'm in the mood to hear Your special, your Own Special Way. I'll play that right now. Well, when you consider it, during a 25-year career, try and find a right. band that writes every single song oh, as a belter. You know? Exactly. You know, I, I have no... There's no greater critique other than... I don't really... <laughs> doesn't doesn't really do it for me, and but other people like it. I'm sure that you know when they played it live, people clapped along and said fantastic. But it did only last one tour, although they broke it out on the Invisible Touch tour in Australia, because part of the legal requirement for touring in Australia was that you had to use local musicians, and so they had they brought a string section to do this and Into Deep, and it's actually a B side on one of those. I think a single for one of the songs off of I, We Can't Dance is, you know, this version of the song with strings is on there. It might even be on Archive 2. I can't remember, but, you know, it's there for the it listening. It is on Archive yeah. 2, and uh, I believe the conversation that the conductor had with his orchestra went along of, hey, guys, I got some good news and some bad news. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to play with Genesis. The good news oh is you're going to play with Genesis. Wait, don't get so excited. It's your own special way. Oh, oh crikey. <laughs> so I, I have to say I'm with Leon in, in, in his field. There's, there's, 
probably very few songs that I can't hit the fast forward button quicker on than your own special way. And it, when I think about like, I, I think of it as Rutherford's first attempt at writing a real love song. And on the same album, you kind of have Tony's first attempt at a real love song, Afterglow. And the two of them together, you put them side by side, you're like, come on, there's no comparison. It's like, I'm sure Rutherford pre- uh, presented this and Tony's like, don't waste my time. Look what I wrote, you know, <laughs> look what I wrote in the time that it took to, to right, record to play it. the song, yeah. And there's, there's one of those, you know, when Phil has that, da-da-da-da, you know, when he does that little, yeah. it, during the verses. Uh, yeah. That's not part of the song. That's Phil screaming to get out of the song. Oh. He, he's trapped in it oh. like Zod in Superman 2 when he's in that two-dimensional right. prison. That's him trying to get out. This is my Superman 2 theory regarding your own special <laughs> okay. way. So he, he's going, ah, because he's trapped in your own special way in that two-dimensional prison. Then what gorilla is explosive enough to break him out of that and by all in a master's night he can sing again and make Mike Rutherford kneel before him. What are you drinking, by the way? We want to share that. And regarding how long it is, to put in perspective, Bohemian Rhapsody is shorter than this song. (laughs) That's all I'm saying. They were able to do what they did with Bohemian Rhapsody in less time than it took to write and record and play your own special way. It's funny That's because all I, gotta say. I was saying I was saying that this song is five or six minutes long, but also in my head I'm like, it can't be that long, and I'm like, oh, it probably is. Oh, you know, it just and, feels longer. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's and you know it. Yeah, I, for me this track just never never took off. So, but again, give me a guitar. I could play those four opening chords over and over again. I like that that sequence. I think it's a very romantic kind of good start to a song, and then it doesn't it doesn't live up to those four chords. Uh, if if or there's one chord with some inversions, <laughs> I think actually. But one good thing I have to say about it is if you listen to some of the live versions from the Wind and Weathering tour, <laughs> after they get out of the Doogie Howser middle keyboard solo, Tony does this little addition to the keyboard, which actually is very nice. All right, if I could just cool as ask. Like from, if I can just listen to the song from that last verse on and have it be like two or three minutes, I'd be fine. But forget the first half. All right, we move on to what gorilla. jazz rock version of One for the Vine that spruces up that melody a bit. I think it's kind I think of it was a neat Phil's thing. like Brand X influence at this yeah. point where he's like <laughs> I think this was like Phil's baby. Like he just gets to rock out and do some jazz fusion or whatever and just yeah. just really go balls to the wall with this tune and I think he really wanted on it. I read somewhere that 
you know, obviously Steve was a little bit frustrated that some other tunes were being included on the album that, you know, weren't his. And I, I read somewhere that this was one of them. I think when they were discussing... You are correct. Yeah, what, what should go on this, they are like, oh, what gorilla? And he was like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially after your own special way, and then you hear what gorilla, and they are so different. <laughs> Yet right. what gorilla is great. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. Well, it's funny because, like, there's... Even though I know Steve doesn't talk about it, doesn't like this very much, he still does some really nice guitar work on it. I think that it's, uh, you know, listening to the remix, I was like, oh, there's definitely more guitar on here than I thought. And so, you know, it's kudos to him for putting out, you know, something that he wasn't terribly thrilled with, but still really putting, you know, 100% of his musical talents behind it. This, to me, sounds almost like a an album overture. Mm. And... When I was listening to it uh, last week, I was like, this would make a great... This could have been the beginning of And Then There Were Three. Sure. As, okay. like, the overture to the album. And I think if this was an overture to the... To, or uh, a linking instrumental into something larger, I think it would have much better reception. Yeah. Because it's interesting. Like, Simon, you were saying, like, your own special way is, you know, hated on by a lot of the Genesis community. I think Walk Gorilla is disliked more. Um, than your own special way. Really? I just think you happen to know and be associated with people <laughs> who really dislike that <laughs> in song. your personal yeah. life yeah. who do not like the song. But I think overall, like a lot, like other fans I've talked to, um, we talk about this album. Like it's kind of the, a throwaway track, kind of like Who Done It from Abacab. It's a or, trifle. It's a know? trifle. Yeah. It, or After the Ordeal. Like it's just that little instrumental, and it's like, yeah, it's like filler. Yeah. Um, but it, it has kind of that like. Starting overture, you know, of an opus kind of feel to it to me. I think it's uh, if they'd have put it first before, say, for example, Eleventh Earl of Mar, you'd have had some kind of sort of proto behind the lines kind of quality mm. to it, you know, because behind the lines for, for me is I, I, I you know, it, it's that's another tale, but that, that I think they got it right there. About oh, putting right. that instrumental yeah, at the start, sure. I'm not so sure I would have I would have put what gorilla at the start of this. Of oh this no, album. I didn't mean this album. I, I said and then there were three. Oh okay, yeah. Well, fair enough. Yeah, I can see oh, no, that. Nothing's replacing the Eleventh <laughs> Earl of Mar as the start of the album. You gotta, you gotta get your dance party kicked off with that. Yeah, so, yeah. There's yeah. just no way you could put what gorilla at the beginning of then there were three. Although I do like down and out. Don't want to go on too much on a tangent, but it's just it's just the way it feels. The the drive of it. It, it has that kind of overture kind of feel to it. I actually kind of think that if if it had been the start of side two versus the end of side one, like if it was the start of side two that led into All in a Mouse's Night, which listening to it on a CD, that makes it, it flow that way a bit better. The way it is now, I mean, the way it was back in the LP days, you know, you get to the What Gorilla, it's the end of a side and I think it does kind of like, oh, that's the end. It kind of just ends there. Yeah. And, you know, again, cool little instrumental, you know. Did Steve... it get played live at all? No, they no, never yeah. played this. Yeah. Yes, it did. In, in the early days of the 77, I think January 1st, 77, <laughs> they did, they only they for might a, have played once. a brief time, they did a medley of Lily White Lilith, The Waiting oh, Room, yeah. and then Gorilla. Yeah. Although I've, I've maybe heard two that. two or three shows, and then yeah. they... They cut it. The waiting room is literally a part of that medley. It's a bit of the tingle, 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 like bells. Like 30 seconds. And then maybe. it goes yeah. into like Lily like Lilith or something like that. So yeah, it's 
it's kind of a like when people said oh it's the waiting room i was like oh really and i was like yeah this is just like a little bit of the percussion from it basically phil fell over the drum kit yeah exactly it was actually a mistake yeah which you know it could be that way but uh but yeah i think it's it's you know when you compare compare this you know steve was not thrilled about please don't touch not being worked on as much as he wanted it to be in not in place of this but you know why what gorilla and not please don't touch you know i i could see his point but when we talked about in that quiet earth i'll talk a little bit more about that well i think the band didn't know that was the name of the song they were i thought that was they were that was steve telling them don't please don't, don't touch, touch my song. don't touch yeah. we want to play this no no don't touch okay all right next is all in a mouse's night Tom and Jerry. Yeah. It's you know, it's a kind of like a, a children's storyline. Yeah, yeah. um, so they had ki- young. Oh, they all had young kids at this point. It's it's lighter. I mean, the, the, it's the, very singable to me in my head. Yes. You know, like the the, the intro. Come on, baby, let the poor thing go. You know, it's yeah. it it's very easily stuck in my head, and I could sing along with it in my head, even when the music's not around. I find that it's one of those songs that does come back to me in weird times. So. Lyrically, it's Tony Banks at probably one of his most playful moments, yeah. really, when mm-hmm. you think about playful. it. Clever in a good way, not clever in a kind of intellectual way. <laughs> Although I know that Phil Collins used to loathe the idea of having to sing the word bread bin. Yeah, bread yeah, bin. yeah. How do you sing? But it's not, you know, there's worse words to sing. Shag you know? pile carpet. <laughs> <laughs> Double glazing windows, you know. It's, Personal it's, applicator. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like I've, in some ways, I've never quite understood that critique because it takes half a second to sing that word. You know, bread bin. He could be singing. But is, you know, the lyrics are a little peanuts, clunky. You know, yeah. it doesn't matter. It's just the words. You know, you sing it. He hates peanuts. <laughs> you just you just sing it. Like I've I've never quite got that criticism of oh I have to sing these lyrics. It's like. Just sing the melody in the words. You don't even have to worry about it. I think it's like most singers. um, You've got to believe or got to get the vibe of what the things... And there are... I mean, God bless Phil. He gamely sung almost everything that was put in front of him, you know. And uh, I think he'd be the first person, I would say, that was right at the front of the queue to say that he has first-hand experience and and has favourites and not favourites, really, when it comes to... uh, 
um, to, to what you sing and this is obviously a little bit further down the list than maybe uh, some of the others I to me this is one of those songs that again the remix kind of really brought out a lot there was a lot of guitar going on the verses that I hadn't heard uh, there's a lot of Steve solo at the end is great um, this is a piece of music is fantastic yeah I could see people being like it's a cat and mouse story who cares you know I actually for a while at the you know when I first started listening to this album I thought that again you know being in the united states and getting things on tape or on records before they had the lyrics you know i knew it was this cat and mouse story but again maybe with genesis being this science fictional band here and there i thought this mouse had actually built a giant cat at the end and that the giant cat was going against the mouse going against the cat or something and i didn't quite understand the song and then when I finally was able to really see the lyrics, I'm like, my interpretation was way messed up of this. <laughs> it's like the cat gets knocked on the head, but then tells all of his cat friends that this giant mouse knocked him out to, to save his save face, basically. And I was like, oh, that's actually a, a fun story. Like, I, I like that. That's fun. I, I agree with Stacey. <laughs> I love, love, love this song. And, and more than a lot of the other songs on the album, which probably... Other people wouldn't say are their favorites, but it's probably one of my favorites on the album. Just as the lyrics, I say, are a little bit twee. You know, talking about the <laughs> bread bin and the mouse tasting cat, but you do sing along to them. It's very easy to get yeah. caught up in it. I love the it's like that bass, like yeah. slapping, and then probably it contains one of my favorite Genesis moments of all. Really? Like I'm talking about their entire catalog, <laughs> and it's only lasts a few seconds, but it's awesome. Kind of like my wedding night, but. <laughs> but there was a moment during the last, uh, the the instrumental outro, when Steve's guitar, his crying guitar, like plays perfectly against Tony's keyboards. It's right at, if you're if you're listening to it at home, at five forty six, it lasts like maybe a second or two. Like the way that his guitar is going up, and maybe Tony's keyboards has a different chord change. But it's just this like moment of brilliance where like I'll wait the whole song just for that moment and be like, oh, okay. And they, they, didn't, they didn't even do that live. Like, I've listened to the live recordings of it. They did play it a few times on that tour, yeah. and it, it's not replicated live, but it's just on that studio hmm. version. When it gets to that point, it's just, it's one of my favorite moments. Right. It's funny how you know. do get those moments. You know, I think every single fan of any band, really, will will have a, um, a story to tell about a moment on a record. You know, yeah. something that's only, as you say, could last a few seconds, but for some reason... It just pinpoints the one thing that you love about that band, or, or I don't know. It, it could be the sum total of what you don't expect of the band, but it sounds fantastic anyway. The last ninety seconds last of that song seconds. are yeah. the most glorious yeah. things that happen to my ears. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what is that? Is that dun dun da da dun? Is that the bass guitar or yeah, is that it's bass. a bass? Yeah. Okay, because we weren't sure. We were Simon and I were talking. We were. I couldn't tell whether or not it was actually a, a synth or it was the bass. I'm pretty sure it's the bass with some like chorus or phasing going on in there that's you know being a semi-bass player myself i was like yeah that's a cool that's again that's rutherford yeah. owning this album on the bass yeah. oh, where you know awesome. throughout this song 11th earl of morrow we've talked about you know rutherford's bass on this album is impeccable it's in your face it's not overbearing it's just the way it should be it's this big chocolatey tone that's like boom right there for you I think it's one of the uh, um, the albums that really defines itself by its rhythm section. Yeah. 
I mean, there's a lot to say. There's a, there's a lot of stuff that was contributed by the other guys in the band. But as a um, as a nucleus, as, as mm-hmm. the backbone of an album, the rhythms on this and yeah. the, the the bass lines impeccable. Right. And it's it's funny because Phil gets a lot of the glory for for being the drummer he is. But you know, but on this album, the two of them together as a rhythm section are they, they are they are there. So that's that's fantastic. I love this song too. <laughs> Who doesn't? <laughs> when we were listening to it today, you were giggling along with the story. The, the, the lyrics, and I love the last line. It only took one blow. Much like my wedding night. It's a funny song. <laughs> 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 All right, uh, sexual innuendo aside, I think are we done with that song? All right, so we go on to Blood on the Rooftops. From this moment on, the record is absolutely perfect for me. That opening section, it kind of screams Steve Hackett. Every yeah. every single bar, that man was in charge of this song, and it really. And the great thing about it is, you can hear the other guys com- perfectly backing him yeah. up on this. It's a great arrangement. It's you know everything is complimentary in that song. Uh, it's it's just very very well put together. And being an American. You know, listening to this, you know, it's to me, it always felt like a day in the life type of story. And I didn't quite know that it was a lot of these British TV references. But the cleverness of it is that you don't have to know that it's these British TV references. Well, Streets of San Francisco is an American TV series. Right. But it just seems like more of a like, again, listening to it and not thinking television at all. It was just more of a. Oh, this is, you know, maybe reflecting on things. Maybe the song's in San Francisco. I don't know. It's it's a slice of life, you know, is how I 
looked at it, and then once either that I read that it was kind of this British TV piece, maybe I kind of made more connections with that. But it doesn't matter in some ways, as at least as an American listener, not knowing that you know, you know, they're out for twenty three. All these references, watch the Queen on Christmas Day. It's like, oh, it's just it's it's evocative of a mood. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I kind of when I listened to the song and the lyrics, I think even just when I, the first time I heard it way back in probably the early mid eighties, like I think I looked at the song the same way that Stacy looks at a. Traps and Friends, like it's such a quintessential English song. Yeah. All this British stuff is going on, and like I was liking to get a view into it, but I just kind of didn't understand it. But I was like, okay, I'm I'm listening to something that like no one else I'm listening to listens to because it's all about this English British stuff. And even though I don't understand it, I appreciate it more than other people who are listening to other stuff. But mm-hmm. now that like I know the read the lyrics and mm-hmm. and it kind of makes a little bit more sense, but it just always struck me as like there's there. There they are bringing English and British, but good for them. I mean, I get just echo what you guys have been saying. Totally. There's a mood there Mm -hmm. that is gorgeous. And yes, I had no idea what they were singing about. (laughs) Probably because I just don't understand (laughs) lyrics in general. Mm -hmm. Um, But the one thing I would like to add is I I think this is the best vocal performance of Phil Mm -hmm. on this album. And did he write the lyrics to this? or did he? he So Steve wrote. So did he... he Did he call? Yeah. Okay. Because to me, it, believing that this is, you know, what I think Phil's best vocal performance in the album, it made me think maybe Tony and Mike were still figuring out how to write for Phil's range, yeah. particularly like one for the Vine and some of the other tracks where he's like up and down and maybe not hitting that range where he's most comfortable. But this is like right in his wheelhouse. It sounds like interesting. You should say that yeah. apparently this is according to, uh, to the, uh, this I'm going from the wiki page here. It says, according to Hackett, the song was a love song. Originally he explained when I heard the other lyrics on the album, there was a bit of a romantic tinge anyway. So I decided to go right the other way and make it as cynical as possible. Yeah. <laughs> and the song marks, I think the first appearance of Phil's trademark, Oh Lord. <laughs> Which he's used several times after that, including in the air tonight. Several thousand times. Several thousand times. times. <laughs> but I don't think he says in all my life in this song, so no, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> that comes a little later. A little later. And this, continuing on the nerdiness, this was the second album in a row where they referenced Helen of Troy. Okay. Because in the song they say, Helen of Troy, it's, it's it seems Helen of Troy has found a new face. Mm-hmm. And in Ripples, they say, a face that launched a thousand ships, and that's reference that's to Helen of Troy. Troy. There you go. You know your mythology you. there. <laughs> I am so hot right now. <laughs> that's right. Cool me down. Cool me down. Uh, I love the first few lines that, that says, uh, Dark and gray, an English film, the Wednesday play. We always watch The Queen on Christmas Day. Won't you stay? It's so British, you know, mm-hmm. as we... A bit of a window into the life yes. in Britain, but... Cynical, as Steve said in there, what you read it. And it was done well, you know, Genesis never played it live, but there were, uh, you know, Steven is, ever since about 2001 or so, had been dropping it into his set list as a complete song. And it was, you know, hearing it live with his band was a real treat, you know, a real pleasure. This, you know, not a forgotten song, but a song because it was never played live, it wasn't on any live albums, it was kind of easy to overlook it was probably never got real radio play in any way shape or form so you know to acknowledge you know the love for this song by playing it live and bringing it back out there you know it's it's really well done and, and you could hear a pin drop when Hackett was playing it live because yeah. you knew everyone in the audience was waiting 
they love the song for years and years and probably mm-hmm. some of them have never if they hadn't heard Hackett play it before they've right. never heard it live yeah. and so when he played it it's just like everyone gave it the reverence that it yeah. deserved when you look at a lot of the um, the live videos and records that are available you'd think that this was a forgotten album but they mm. actually did reference this album an awful lot in live sets oh, and yeah. subsequent tours mm-hmm. you can see that no matter how many years passed mm-hmm. a lot of the material on this album was still important to the band Definitely. you only have to look at the uh, the set list uh, on the um, the shapes album right and they what did they where right. was they, well they played afterglow off of that they played part of uh, you know uh, in that quiet earth part of the medleys would have 11th Earl of Mar in it um, and that was you know that was it but afterglow became such a live song maybe even better known live is yeah. from on the album yeah. because it's one of those tracks that you can hear for the first time and not not need to have heard it before to enjoy it it always seems to be that track that they sort of end their epic medleys with you yeah, know sure wasn't it also um, uh, I mean I don't know whether or not you feel this but the album as a whole feels like a winter album to yeah, me fall or winter yeah it's yeah. definitely that that uh, you know season cold I was gonna say to me this is the the best example from Genesis of the album cover matching the the Mm. album itself the the music the mood so this is the best example of that like they got it right with Mm. this in my opinion and it was hard for me to listen to this album um, in 80 degree weather <laughs> here in Philadelphia. Like yeah. usually yeah. I bust this out when like January with a bottle of wine, you know, right. and yeah, this is. Yeah, I find but... and then there were threes like that for me also. And mm. then there were three threes, a very fall winterish album. I agree so. with that. Well, there's a lot of snow themes on yes. that. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We'll move on now to the instrumentals, Unquiet Slumbers for the Sleepers in That Quiet Earth.
I think these are both references to, is it the Bronte? Yes, Wuthering Heights. Yeah. Granted, we don't get to talk about lyrics here with this, and Unquiet Slumbers, to me, is always the, you know, the prelude in that quiet earth. It's a nice kind of quieter, instrumental, more acoustic piece there. Some nice melody running through with the keyboardish slash almost flute-sounding lines going through it. And it's a nice introduction for a much heavier driving instrumental. I think when I was listening to it today, it just kind of struck me like one of those moments like, oh, this song would fit here. It would work perfectly as one of those instrumental interstitial songs on like the second album of The Lamb when right. they're transitioning between songs. Sure. This song could actually just fit in perfectly yeah, there. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, I totally get that. What I like about when we get into the rock version within that quiet earth uh and there was always for me the question of when exactly in that quiet earth started back in the album days vinyl where it was like okay it's these two tracks they're instrumental where's the starting point and for a while i remember thinking that you know the quieter unquiet slumbers part went into the rock part and when in the Quiet Earth started after the and I thought that was the start of In That Quiet Earth. Uh, I'm with you on that. It's exactly what I thought. Yeah, well. but it's and and there's actually you know conversation that I've had with some people who you'd think would know who were kind of like where does that start? And I always said you know it starts with the drum part because on certain best of type things now like the Platinum Collection they have in that quiet earth on there and so it just starts off with the drum roll into which within that quiet earth i've always kind of thought that you know steve had this instrumental of um please don't touch that he really wanted on this album and wanted to work on and phil kind of classically set up can't get behind that you know when they were trying to rehearse it up and also for me i always kind of thought that in That Quiet Earths was a better version of that type of instrumental, that kind of screaming guitar lead mm-hmm. instrumental with in the in Genesis's context. Whereas if they had done both In That Quiet Earth and Please Don't Touch, to me they almost would have been too similar to each other to have both of them on the album. And so at some point, I, maybe there had to be a choice made, you know. And I wonder whether or not if that was the tipping point. Yeah, well, it was one of those things that he... I mean, Steve's second album after... First album after he left Genesis was Please Don't Touch, which, if anything, was, you know, a, a kind of message, perhaps. You know, I'm reading into that myself. But, you know, and I think that there was something that Steve said in an interview where he said that he ran... After Please Don't Touch came out, he ran into Phil somewhere, like somewhere in London. And Phil even was like oh, you know, I heard that. He's like, that's not how I remember it sounding when we were doing this. Like, he actually liked it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Phil was kind of like, oh, maybe we should have worked on that a bit more, yeah, you know? Nice because that's... But but I to me, it's like, I, I like both of those instrumentals. I actually do like In That Quiet Earth better because I think that maybe just as part of that whole kind of perfection of the end of the album that it just, it, it really works for me. With guitar at the, at the beginning, the keyboard kind of taking it over at the end and them doing it in unison for a bit. Yeah. If you are a member of Genesis and you have some insight to offer, please give us a call. <laughs> right. We'll be happy to talk to you about any of this. Well, I, I actually prefer the first 
part of this All two right. part thing because I, I love the mood oh, I love sure. the it just sounds so different and it sounds very true you know it has you know with everything that Genesis does it's always you know sounds new and different than what they've done before and what they do in the future but this has a I just like the the mood of it I do love the second half and it rocks out but I prefer like the live version right. when they do it live um, and I think maybe that's because I've been listening to like the mama tour yeah. video or watching the mama video and I've been hearing kind of the how they incorporate medleys later before mm-hmm. I got this album sure. kind of biased to the live <laughs> version sure, and that's no. why I think maybe the the first half really oh piqued yeah. my interest it's because it was very yeah. different and I do love that kind of flute that top line yeah. it's just there's something like disturbing about it it's kind of got a darkness to it oh. I, I, I don't know yeah. I'm attracted to that I prefer In That Quiet Earth I mean the, the Unquiet Slumbers it's, it's very different and I love Steve's guitar it cries from the beginning loud mm. you know and it's like a Tony Steve battle you know mm. keyboard guitar and it's beautiful. I, I love the song. I love the piece. And I, I love the, you know, anything with full stops in it. And listening to it from the Mama album and yeah. uh, Mama Tour and onwards, there's that kind of extra da 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 da. And Phil would do these. Oh, yeah. Which isn't on the original. And which I play in, you know, when I hear the old version now, I kind of put that in in my head now. And it fits perfectly. I'm like, oh, that's brilliant you know it's it's again you know it's very it's it's musician trick 101 kind of put some more emphasis in different areas but it's it just really works for me and and segues nicely into the end of the album well, I, I, I was going to say that um this is another album which serves as a fine example of the seamlessness between banks's keyboard work and steve hackett's yes. guitar work next yes. to one another that's a, a thing of beauty i think yes and there are times when you can't tell who's playing right. who. Because both the keyboard sound like guitar and Steve can make his guitar sound like a keyboard. And that's, I think sometimes, it's easy to kind of think that the, the guitar sounds are actual keyboard. And maybe not as much vice versa. So you kind of think like, oh, where is Steve in the mix here and everything? Especially on, you know, the joke about seconds out. Oh, we met Steve out after he left type of thing. But so much of his guitar live on record does have that keyboardish sound mm-hmm. to it so it's yeah it's difficult to tell the difference but it's it's there i mean i love this tune because one it's as like stacy said it's linked to the mama video so every mm-hmm. anytime i hear the song mm-hmm. i automatically think of the mama video and I, and as, as simon said about it you know when every cut is made to every beat and especially with this song i know like the boom it shows mike's guitar then it shows <laughs> and uh they've often called this album like a feminine album because it's very tony banks heavy very romantic but this song has some pretty big balls which, which yes it's like for a whole feminine album this one kind of like is like all right here's some balls i've got to imagine this came out of jamming i mean yeah there might be some composed parts in there but i can just imagine kind of phil starting up these drum patterns and then just jamming for hours on these on these riffs Another nostalgic point, just when I listen to the song, it makes me think that this is the last time on record that the four of them are really jamming out together. Yeah, sure, it goes into Afterglow, and it's a little bit of a softer song, and they're playing all together. In That Quiet Earth kind of represents the last time that the four of them are really going all out, having fun, really nailing it together. And that kind of, you know, it's a little wistful when they hear this. Great. So, shall we move on to Afterglow? Afterglow. 
song for the end of the album i think it's a classic it was one of those tracks which <coughs> when i first got three sides live i always skipped because hmm. i thought well the playing's over and done with now they're just doing a song but <laughs> for some reason a little while later further down the line it was probably about five or six years i got it and i just thought this is amazing yeah and it's now one of my favorite songs especially when they play it live it is their live anthem. You know, yes. it is their live... Yeah, when you, you, this is the song you put your lighter up to or your iPhone, I guess, with the lighter app on it. Um, which is funny because I've heard the live version quite a few times for the album version. And then so when I listened to it on Wind & Weather, like, it sounded kind of weak. It's a little, not overproduced, but it's more produced yes, than a exactly. live version with the backing vocals, yeah, the ahs yeah, in there. Yeah, it was, yeah, that kind of ah, and yeah. like uh, and I just, and the guitar sounds like a rubber band. I, yeah. I don't like the guitar sound. I don't know. It reminds me of an I Know What I Like, actually, kind of just had yeah, that kind of sound to it, but. I mean, yeah. it's a great song, but yeah. I think, again, you know, when we're speaking from the, you know, just from the album version, we like it a lot less than hearing the live version. As a song, you love it, this version, yeah, you're not quite... Yeah, yeah, it, it hasn't grabbed me. Um, but I do, yeah, I really do love the song. I remember, I this is a song I used to sing to my brother when he was a baby Aww. to help him get him to sleep. When you're doing that transition from in that, in that Quiet Earth to Afterglow, the lushness of mm -hmm. Tony's keyboards, all those chords coming out once, it just evokes this emotion from you, and, and yeah, it makes me think of the Mama video and the live, mm -hmm. and just everything that this song is, it's Genesis. I mean, this is, you can't get more Genesis than this song. And I, I know some people will say, well, they played it on a lot of the tours, they didn't need to play it on maybe the 2007 tour, but since I missed them on the Invisible Touch tour, to hear them play that in 2007 after that ending medley, it was just like, okay, I can die now. I've heard, them, I've, heard, I've heard them play Afterglow live with the awesome lights. Not as good as the lights from the Mama tour, but I heard them do the song live, and it, it was a moment. Yeah, because you can't say it. you've seen Genesis live unless you heard yeah. them do Afterglow. I have to say cool. that it's from a power point of view, every bit the equal of uh, the, end, the New Jerusalem section at the yeah. end of, uh, of Supper's Ready. I agree, yes. It's, it's, it's a great live song rather than the studio song, but I love the transition from the end of In That Quiet Earth to mm. Afterglow. That's a beautiful transition. Mm -hmm. But I, I enjoy it very much. I like the live versions. And I love the lyrics, the sad lyrics. I have a complex relationship with this song. <laughs> my reasoning is because my very first rock concert was Genesis in 1987 on the end of the Invisible Touch Tour, Giant Stadium, New Jersey. And as a fan, I had taped things off the radio shows, and I discovered that on the King Bister Flower Hour, when the, for their old medley, they did In the Cage, into In That Quiet Earth, into the end of Supper's Ready, which at the time, I didn't really know what Supper's Ready was, but I had learned, and I thought this was awesome. And so going to see them at Giant Stadium, they played the In the Cage medley, In the Cage, 
into in that quiet earth and i was like oh my god i'm gonna see this cool thing supper's ready this it's gonna be intense and they go into afterglow and i was like oh i really wanted to see the end of supper's ready and i'm seeing afterglow oh but it's still kind of tied up with me for this event from over 30 years ago uh, that uh, maybe not get 30 years. Over it, I should get over it. It's almost thir- it's almost thirty years. I can't believe it's almost thirty years ago. But that, that's not Afterglow's fault. It is not. It is. I own that this is my fault. But it is seriously. Yeah. I can see why that would stay yeah. with you. Yeah. And it was it was my formative teen years. It was my first rock concert, and I was just like, oh, this is great. And it, it's it just disappointed. So yeah. I, but I've learned to live with that. I appreciate the song. I was happy to see it in 2007, even though I'd seen it in 1987. <laughs> uh, I was fine that I didn't see it in '92. You know, it's one of those songs that had it not been been in the set at the end of the old medley in 2007, I would have been okay with that. But it was, and I was okay with that too. So my life I, wouldn't have been complete. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad we were able to complete your life, if nothing else. So. And that gets us to the end of Wind and Wuthering as an album. Should we talk about our favorite personal track on the album? Who would like to start? I'll go first. It came down to 11th Earl of Mar and All in Mouse's Night. All right. But 11th Earl of Mar wins because I like to dance to it. (laughs) Very nice. So that's my vote. All right. Mine, I was going to say your own special. Oh, no, wait. Sorry, Mike. So, sorry, Mike. All in a mouse's night. I love that song. Excellent. Yes. Um, 11th of Mar. It contains my personal favourite moment of Genesis, which is that middle section, the time to go to bed now section, okay. which I love. For me, it's Blood on the Rooftops. It's, you know, again, this perfect slice of music kind of put into a really fantastic album. Blood on the Rooftops just is that combination of emotion and... You know, a great tune, well performed, well. Phil's vocal is spot on, and you know, it's it's the emotional highlight for me of this album. It came down to me between All in a Mouse's Night and Afterglow, just because of everything that Afterglow represents. But if there's one song that I think I'd have to like, can I listen to over and over and and not get tired of? I'd probably say All in a Mouse's Night. All right. This is fascinating. That, that, <laughs> I would have never expected that would get the votes. But uh, Tom, your poll. What, what do we get for responses from the great Tabletop Genesis listening public? Tom showed you his poll. Here is my poll, and it was very interesting this time. Uh, it actually wasn't pretty close for the top spot. Uh, with almost 30% of the vote. Uh, Blood on the Rooftops. Mm-hmm, I win. <laughs> number one favorite song from, from voters. Uh, coming in at number two was a tie. Both received 19% of the vote. A tie between One for the Vine hmm. and Afterglow. All right. Yeah, nice. All right. Coming in after that, uh, 11th Earl of Mar. All right. Uh, then In That Quiet Earth. Mm-hmm. Followed by All in a Mass's Night, which only got about 4% of the vote. Kind of oh, disappointed wow. in that. Person. But yet, 40% of this vote. On, on I think a lot of people are now going to go back to All in a Mass's <laughs> Night <laughs> with their headphones on <laughs> and, or blast it through their 5.1 yes. system and then say, thank you, Tabletop Genesis. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. 
then with about two and a half percent of the vote, uh, it was a tie between Walk Gorilla and Unquiet Slumbers. Right. And with a big fat zero goose egg <laughs> is your own special way. I mean, <laughs> have, have we actually, is this the first time a song has gotten zero votes? So in far, a this is the first time that a song has gotten zero votes. Sorry, even, Mike. I think even Illegal Alien got one vote. <laughs> that was me. Um, <laughs> wow, that's, I'm, I'm actually surprised that no one voted for your own special way. But also not. So <laughs> I think I, actually, I think it has negative five. Votes. <laughs> That's right. People took away votes to give it to somewhere else. Sorry, Mike Rutherford, if you're hearing this. You we know, love we you. like your other songs, just not that one. So great. Well, that's been our main course for uh, Wind and Weathering. Thanks for listening. This is Mike Lord signing off. Tom Roche. Stacy, the Earl of Mar. Ellie <laughs> Nottinger. <laughs> And Simon Godfrey. Thanks for listening. We really appreciate it. Blood on the rooftops, Venice in the spring. Streets of San Francisco. Word from Peking. Thank you for listening to this episode of Tabletop Genesis. Archived episodes can be found at tabletopgenesis.com, along with updates, polls, and various other podcast-related news. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes to have the shows automatically downloaded to your computer when we post new episodes. To keep up with all the Tabletop Genesis activity, follow us on Twitter at Genesis Tabletop. You can like us on Facebook by searching for Tabletop Genesis, and you can email us directly at genesistabletop at gmail.com. Let us know what you think of the podcast or send us questions we can address on future episodes.